The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Raising support, and when that was done, you began to meet together for training purposes. You're formulating your strategies, figuring out what each person's different gifts and abilities and strengths and, and their role will be. Been studying some foreign language. You've been studying Islam because you're trying to learn about the environment that you'll be entering into. This is all progressing. Things are going well as you're approaching your departure date. And then, just about a, a week before the launch, before you take off and fly overseas, one of your team members converts to Islam and suddenly flies away to the city that you were about to go to. That would be a little disconcerting, I would think. A little demoralizing, confusing. You might think, how are we going to convert anybody else so we can't even keep our own people? This is, this is hard. And it's dangerous because apart from, from what we were about to do and the faith we're expressing, this was supposed to be a secret work. It's dangerous to do what we're about to do in this foreign country. And surely our cover is now blown. Why else would he fly there? We're not even going to make it out of the airport. This is a bad idea. We better stop. The whole thing just got blown up. That, I think, would be a natural response. That would probably be my, be my response in that situation. But what if, somehow, you were to receive some certain definitive word, not like an impression or an idea, but this couldn't happen, but what if you were to receive a definitive certain word from God that said, that, in fact, that whole betrayal there, that was all planned by me. I orchestrated that. I've got something up my sleeve here, and I've actually prepared another person to fill in that role. I want you to continue and go. If you could receive definitive word along those lines, I think that would change your perspective. It would change mine. It'd still be kind of hard to swallow, but I would know that God is in charge of it and that I'm meant to move ahead. That's something like I'm saying I made all that up, but that's something like what the early church is facing in our passage for this morning. And that sort of experience in life, as we step out to embrace the Great Commission, and we'll face all kinds of different challenges, disconcerting and, and demoralizing as they are, that's the sort of thing that this kind of passage is meant to address in our lives as well. We look here, and then we look at this world, which we're going to face all kinds of disappointing things that don't quite match up to what we're expecting, to what should be. And this passage speaks to that. Meant to encourage us about the nature of God and encourage us so as to become active, faithful people. The active part I'm going to be emphasizing today. Not just faithful people, not just people who trust God, but people who trust God actively, based on what we've seen about God. So we're going to look at today in this passage in Acts chapter 1. Last week we began the book of Acts, and we saw there Jesus giving to his apostles and to the church, therefore, the great commission, the great assignment, the great task to go out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the very ends of the earth, to go out and testify to Jesus, to make him an issue Everywhere, But don't do that quite yet, he said. I'm going to send the Spirit, power, to enable you to do that. So go to the city and wait. The power comes next week. Here this week now, 
We're just before launch date. We're going to deal with a couple other preparatory details. They're going to show us God and move us to be active, faithful people. Let me read the passage. I'm in Acts chapter 1, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Right after Jesus leaves and goes back to heaven, then they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Immediately following the ascension of Christ back up into heaven, the disciples returned to Jerusalem, remembering that they were supposed to go to the city and await the coming of the Spirit, which would happen, quote verse 5, a few days from now. So they go to the city, and they go to this upper room, which must have been a substantially large room, because as you keep reading, there were a number of people there. There were the 11 disciples, the apostles, as well as a number of women in Jesus' immediate family. His mother and his brothers came to faith in him after the cross. All these folks were all meeting together in this upper room. Now, they're not holed up there constantly. We know that they went to the temple regularly to worship But the implication of the text is that they are very, very frequently in this room together. Men and women both, which is significant for that culture. This new community that's being formed here is a male and female community. That's not to say that there aren't any differences between men and women. There are, but what's very significant is that each gender alike is met together expecting something to be poured out on them. Both men and women have equal entitlement to this expected promise that's coming, the Spirit. This is a unique statement here. They're gathered together, men and women both. 
Together with the women, the men are praying fervently. They're united and they're praying consistently. They meet together, not just to hang out, not just to, to fellowship. They're not waiting passively. Remember the command was go to the city and wait Well, they're not just waiting passively, sitting on the couch, waiting for something to happen. They're waiting actively. They are praying consistently, persistently, fervently. They are prevailing in prayer is the idea. They are praying and praying and praying constantly while they are met together. And at some point during that time, verse 15, Peter rises and brings something to their attention. And he's going to address something through the scriptures. There are 120 people there. Now, probably throughout the whole land of Israel, there were a few more followers of Christ. But in the city, there are 120, less than the number of people here today. This is not that large of a group. God frequently uses small numbers so as not to confuse people where the power comes from. Got a very small number of people who are gathered here. And Peter stands and addresses something that's kind of a sore point for them still. The betrayal of Judas. It's hard to swallow for them because it was confusing, painful. They'd been betrayed by a three-year-long friend, and it was probably embarrassing. As verse 19 says, the whole city knew what had happened and knew what had happened to this guy, Judas, the betrayer. Put these verses together with what we read in Matthew, and what had happened is Judas had received his payment and then felt guilty, and he threw the money back into the temple because the priests wouldn't take the money back. They're like, no, 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 that's, that's your money now. We don't want anything to do with that. That's dirty money. So he tries to get rid of it by throwing it into the temple, and they say, we're going to take your money, and we're going to buy a piece of land in your name that's going to belong to you. It's not ours. It's yours. So he buys the field with his own money. Of course, they're the agents of it. And then, filled with guilt and remorse, he goes and he hangs himself in that field. And perhaps a rope broke, or a branch broke, or maybe his neck broke, and... He falls and bursts open. It's a, just imagine that. It's a gruesome thing, which again in that culture says something. People die, and when people die in a nasty sort of way, that says something about how God thinks of them. And everybody knows. Here's this guy, one of the inner circle, who betrayed your Jesus and then died in this ugly way. We don't want anything to do with you guys. This is a problem for them. And Peter's going to address that. It's not just a problem because of the betrayal. There's a little more to that. It's a problem because there are now only 11 disciples. And there are supposed to be 12. Exactly 12. 11 won't do, and as you keep reading, 13 won't do either. It has to be 12. So you get kind of a two-fold problem. There aren't 12, and the way there became not 12 was not good. What's the deal here? Well, why, why did Jesus pick 12 originally? Obviously, it's because there were 12, there were 12 tribes in Israel. He's making a statement. A statement similar to what other Jewish religious groups and subgroups in that culture made. Before the time of Jesus, the group, for instance, that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls, the people who copied those and, and preserved them in the, the jars, the group that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls also had 12 special leaders and rulers. They're making a statement. It's kind of like this. They're saying, we are the true, faithful, righteous remnant of Israel that the Old Testament talks about repeatedly. 
this subgroup that God would bless and would come upon to bring the Messiah to and deliver, that's us. All of you all over here, you're not. You're not good. You're not safe. It's kind of like a fork in a river. The majority of the river is going this way and going over the waterfall and perishing, but we are the 12 tribes. We are the channel through which the blessings given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who was, renamed, who was named Israel, you'll recall, and had the 12 sons. That's us. The blessing of God flows right here. Come join us. That's a statement that subgroups would make, trying to establish themselves as the right people. That's the same thing that Jesus is saying. When Jesus picks 12 apostles, and then you read in Matthew and Luke establishes them as the heads who will judge the 12 tribes, he's saying the very same thing. The majority of Israel is over here, and right here is the faithful remnant, the new 12. And all who descend from you receive the blessings of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, receive the covenant, and will receive, as proof of that, the Spirit poured on them. Come with us. That's the statement being made. And so they're supposed to go out and preach to Jerusalem. We are the twelve. We are the blessed chosen ones. Oops. There's only eleven. And how that came about was not good. Who's going to believe that? Do we believe that? We have a problem for ourselves in our own hearts because we've been this whole time buying this. You're the twelve. You're the ones. And now we're not. That presents a problem in here and it presents a problem out here because nobody's going to believe us. How can we be the right channel when we are broken? This whole thing's failed. It's collapsed. God's plan is broken. And Peter stands up and says, Ah, but hold on a second. The scriptures speak to this. Friends, listen to this. Verse 16. It had to happen in this way. Emphasis on had to. Divine necessity. It had to be this way. Listen to what the Holy Spirit said. As a side note, it's interesting to note how we are supposed to look at the Bible. This is David's mouth, David's pen. The Holy Spirit said it. The Holy Spirit's word is coming out of David's mouth. That's how we are to view the Scriptures. God said something. The Holy Spirit said something about Judas that had to be fulfilled. Not might be, had to be. Here's the sovereign control of God showing itself a thousand years before Judas was born. It must be fulfilled. He was numbered among us and he had to betray Jesus. One who was my close, trusted friend who has eaten my bread with me, Psalm 41. May his camp become desolate and let no one dwell in it, Psalm 69. And let another instead take his place, Psalm 109. Think that through with Peter. Peter's looking at this situation, challenged by the problem, but then says, actually, a thousand years ago, this was dealt with. At the very least, that means that God perfectly knew it, predicted it, and was in charge of it. Is not remotely surprised by it. He chose Judas knowing what was going to happen with Judas. His plan is still carrying on. He's perfectly in charge of what looks like a problem to us. And he's perfectly in charge of the solution as well. Let another take his office, says the scriptures. 
The betrayer's place will be filled by someone else. In verse 22, we have it at the very end. Someone must fill his place. In the original, that's actually front-loaded for emphasis. It must be that someone else will take his place. That's why they say down below, we know the one, we know you have chosen someone. Already been decided. Help us find the one that you've chosen. So what do they do? Well, Peter begins to act, act, based on this sure control of God over the situation. He reads in the Bible, the betrayal is planned, the replacement is planned, and he concludes, therefore, I have something to do. Community, we have something to do. We have to set about finding this replacement that has already been chosen. And they set up some parameters. They write a job description, if you will, based upon the Scripture's guidance, on Jesus' guidance. Jesus said that we're supposed to be witnesses to him. Well, we better find somebody who could actually do that then. Our job description has to include eyewitness. Of all of Jesus' life, eyewitness of the resurrection. Okay, who do we have that fits that? And they find two people. And they present two guys. They present them back to the Lord. You know hearts. Lord. You're a heart knower. Help us to choose the one that you've chosen. And they cast lots. They roll dice. A very common way of doing that in their day. Incidentally, that's not prescribed for us in the New Testament anywhere after Pentecost. We don't read anything about that. So it seems that that has passed away from us, given now that the Spirit lives in us in a new and powerful way. But in their time, that was the way things were done. The book of Proverbs says that the lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is from the Lord. And so they're following what the Bible tells them to do, throw a lot and let God decide. So they did. Matthias was picked and numbered amongst the apostles. God solved the problem through their action. That's the text. And to try to summarize that, I put it like this. Actively, there's part of my emphasis here, actively, In faith, depend on God. It's about us. Actively in faith, depend on God to do all that is necessary to fulfill his commission. There's two halves here. We are to actively in faith depend on God who will do all that is necessary to fulfill his great commission. So there's two halves there. And this part about God is actually the motivator for this half. Given what's true over here, God's sure control, his commitment to do what's necessary, his commission, given this, we can, in faith, act, and must, in faith, act. Those two halves are what I'm going to look at here this morning. Start with God. First point is about God. Before I give it to you, let me explain how I get to this point, because A lot of people see something different in this passage, and I want to explain how I'm coming at it. First, I note the the content of the passage. What's here? We just described all that. Know all the details. But then I'm asking, what's the intent? Why is it here? Now, a lot of people will look at this passage and will use it as a structure to help us discern how to select a pastor or another church ministry leader or something like that. And, And sure, there are principles here we can pull out. That's true. But as I look at that, and I look at where it falls in the book of Acts, I'm not convinced that that's the main point. We can use it in some ways for that, but it's not the main point. He's given us this great commission. He's about to pour out the Spirit, and in the middle he tells us how to choose pastors. I don't get that. 
think there's something else going on. The problem that comes up here, the problem that surfaced, is what about this empty 12th seat? That's the problem being solved. Not we need to expand our staff. What do we do? It's showing us something about God in the specifics of what he does in filling this 12th seat. So, here's here's the main point. First point. God does indeed have a sovereign plan, and this is it. God has a sovereign plan, and community, rest assured, this is it. They're threatened by the betrayal. They're threatened by the empty seat. Is this right or not? And how are we going to sell this to other people? This isn't going to work. And he says, no, 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 this is my plan. It's working out according to plan, and this is my plan. Stick with it. Continue. Discuss this already. God has an eternal plan of redemption planned way before the beginning of time. In eternity past, it's always been in his mind. He's not making it up as he goes along. Eternally planned the incarnation of the Son. Eternally planned his submission and humility. Planned his abandonment by Israel, his rejection by the people. Planned the beating, planned the cross, planned the piercing of his sides, the fluid would flow out. Planned the buried in a rich man's tomb, planned the resurrection three days later. Planned the building of a new Israel through faith, not by bloodline. Planned all of that, and so as to be very clear about it, wrote it down a thousand years beforehand. Because at every turn of that plan, people are going to scratch their heads and say, What? How can that be? No way. And at every turn we can say, Way. It's here. And it's here. And it's here. And it's here. And it's here. All of the plan made clear in the scriptures a thousand some years later coming to pass. He wants to be very clear about something. I reign over all things, he says. Over great times and seasons, movements of history such that Rome ends up controlling Judea so that the Messiah is hung on a tree and not stoned. I control that and the little bitty things of an individual man's heart such that Judas would look at Jesus and become disillusioned and betray him. I'm in charge of that too. All things, all is under my dominion, none of it fails. I choose 12, I choose one of them to betray me, I choose a replacement. Perfectly, all aspects of this plan are under my control and are working out exactly as they should. Read the Psalms, he says in this case. These 12 right here with the new replacement, it is my plan. There's not some other plan. These 12, the community built on these 12, which for us means the New Testament. This is the way. Hold it, follow it. Nothing's failed, nothing's broken. Trust me. That's the application of this. You see God sovereign over all of this, working out his plan, providing everything that is needed at every point. We're supposed to look at that and not just say, huh, interesting, but to say, I'll rest in that. Nothing slips by him. I'll rest in that. I will trust him. 
He does indeed have a sovereign plan. This is it. It's working out perfectly. It was necessary for Judas to betray him. Necessary to have the spot filled. This is an important thing for us to consider as a church. Think about where we are right now. Just recall some facts here. We are an approximately 200-person church in Salt Lake City, Utah. That's a fact. Okay? We're tasked with reaching this valley for Christ. And that's an uphill battle. We are, relatively speaking, inexperienced in persistent personal evangelism. It's not our strength. We lack an evangelistic point person like we talked about yesterday and like Don talked about this morning, a point person or a point group. We lack that key element. Sometimes, I hate to say, we even lack a heart to engage with this mission. I hope it's becoming one of your top agenda items, but it might not have been in years past. Our budget is 15% behind right now. Half the time, I don't know what I'm doing. That's honest. How does that make you feel? (laughs) It's true. (laughs) As a great commission Christian, that's reality. Picture the, the map of the world up there. The only way you can make this like this big so you can put it in your pocket is to deny that and to deny all that I just said to limit the mission and the scope. If you embrace all that and look at it, it's really easy to say, no way this is going to work. No way. And even to ask, is this even the right way? Because, man, it seems like it's like falling apart. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. We're not even keeping up with the population growth in the world, let alone advancing beyond that. Is this, is this going to work? Is it? What do you think? The right answer is yes, but what do you really think? Are we going to be used to reach this valley for Christ? What do, what do you think? The right answer is yes. What do you really think? I hope that you think yes. I pray that you think yes. It's our job. It's our job. It's our job. It's our job. And he is trustworthy to do all that is necessary to accomplish it because really it is his job. It is Christ's great commission. He is much more passionately committed to making the name of Jesus known and worshipped around the world than I am, than you are. He is certainly committed to calling in his sheep. It will happen. It must happen. The church of Jesus Christ will advance against the gates of hell and they will not prevail against it. Promised in the scriptures. Certain to happen. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him actively we can look at this and say I I trust you 
But you can check, do you really trust him, by looking if the actively part follows. That's the second point. We don't just sit back and say, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. Wake me up when it's done. We say, God's going to do what God's going to do, and God's going to do that through us. This book is called, best, The Acts of God Through the Apostles. Clearly, they are active. Again and again and again, the church is clearly active in this passage as well. Here's the second point. We must respond with faith-filled action. We take, the, we take to heart this reality of God, of God certainly being in charge, of God certainly reigning over all things, not threatened by any turn of events. It's all under his control. His great big paw sits on top of it. You ever seen a large dog just do this and whatever was under there isn't moving anywhere? He's, he's got it. And we take that and we say, therefore, I can be encouraged to myself act. That's what Peter and company do. That's how they respond. <clears throat> they understand the certainty here. Peter says twice, it must be. Peter reads the Bible and said, the Bible can't fail. It must be. So, let's do it. You know, it seems to me, and he begins to set some parameters, as I said. They don't run off by themselves, apart from God, to solve this problem, nor do they sit back and do nothing. They take direction from the Scripture. We're going to have to find Judas' replacement. It's going to have to look like this and that. Better pick somebody who has the right qualifications. And then verse 24, confident that Christ has chosen someone, they say, who have you chosen? Help us to choose him. Two things working together here. We have responsibility in the midst of God's sovereignty. There are a lot of ways to work that out. There's a biblical way and there are a bunch of other ways. If you want to talk about that later, we can. Right now, just know we have a responsibility in the midst of God's sovereignty. They come to him humble and submissive and ask for guidance in their limited wisdom. You know, you're a heart knower. Show us, please. We want to pick your pick. We want to choose your choice. And it works out. Now, what is all that? It's just trusting action. It's really ordinary trusting action. The very same kind of stuff we did on a search committee recently, looking for Pastor Kurt. You write a job description. You pray. Apart from the throwing of the dice. I wasn't there if we did that. Yeah. But apart from that, the very same sort of stuff. Very ordinary. But it's all cast to the light of, we are leaning on you, God. We're not going to stand up on our own two feet, nor are we going to sit down. We're going to stand leaning on you. Such that if you step away, I fall down. But I'm standing. You do that sort of thing here, and, it, and it's just like this. It's very normal sort of things here. Select leaders by asking God to look at the hearts of people and make his choice clear. Now, at this point, we could apply a lot of this to how to choose a pastor or how to make any decision in ministry, frankly, any decision in life, frankly. But I don't want to go that direction in particular because I think we already do a pretty good job of that. Not to say we make every decision exactly based on uh, no sinful desires or anything like that, but we do a pretty good job of that as a church. Instead, I want to focus a little more on another faith-filled response in this passage, one in verse 14, because I think that is a greater need for our church. We reckon that God is in control. <clears throat> we recall, for instance, from last week or from 
many other places in the scripture that Jesus promised his disciples, and Jesus' promises don't fail. He promised his disciples, I will send the promise of the Father, said Luke. I will send power from on high. I will send the Spirit. Is that going to happen or not? Yes, it's going to happen. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Is that going to happen or not? Yes, it's going to happen. What are they praying about? Why bother praying if it's going to happen? Because they are taking the surety of the promise and saying, our appropriate response is active faith. You will work this through us. So we pray. Not once, not twice, consistently, persistently, in a prevailing way. They are actively grabbing hold of the promise and praying it down into their lives. You said you'd send the Spirit. Send Him. We beg you. Now. Give it this power from above that we need. Send us out on this mission like you said you would. Pour the Spirit on us, we ask, Lord. With one accord, they devote themselves not to resting and waiting passively, but to praying. Again and again and again, earnestly. It doesn't have to be loud kind of prayer or poetic kind of prayer or showy kind of prayer or tearful kind of prayer. It has to be persistent kind of prayer. Earnest. The kind of prayer that says, please, God, I read here what it says. Give that please now. Luke 18, persistent widow type of prayer. Do you know that parable? Jesus, it says in the text, Jesus told this parable to encourage people to always pray and never give up. If you want to interpret something, that's a really easy way to interpret it, when he tells you why he's telling you. Always pray and don't give up. That's the point. Let me tell you the story. That's how it goes. There's a persistent widow there. She's a widow. She needs justice. There's a judge in town who can give justice. And so she keeps going and going and going to this judge because he has what she needs, needs, needs. The judge has what she needs. She understands the relationship. What she needs, who has it? She doesn't go to her grocer, not her neighbor, not some farmer. She goes to the judge. Give me justice, judge. Knock, knock, knock. Again the next day. Knock, knock, knock. Again the next day. Knock, knock, knock. Persistence. Jesus tells that story and then ends it by saying, and she got what she asked for because she just wore the guy out. And is God like that? He says, no. God's not reluctant. God's not unconcerned about justice, frustrated that you're asking him. Now he waits to test faith. The story ends actually with Jesus saying, but I wonder if there will be any faith on earth. He waits sometimes to see, do you really want to ask me? Do you really think it comes from me? Let's see, do you come twice? Or do you give up and then go to talk to the grocer? He waits sometimes, but he answers. He's motivated to. He wants to. What do you need? Who has it? How convinced of that are you? What you think you need probably depends at least a little bit on what you think your job is. If you think that your job is, I'm supposed to go home today, watch a little bit of the NFL, maybe if the weather was a little nicer, play some golf, go to sleep, get up tomorrow morning and go to work. If that's what your job is, let's be honest, millions and millions of non-Christians manage to do that all by themselves. You probably can too. 
So why bother praying, really? Or if you pray, it's just to help me to get through this day. But if your job is a little more than that, if your job is to, while you do some of those things, influence people towards Christ effectively, or maybe to set some of those self-priorities aside and actually initiate with someone else that might be out of your comfort zone or might take some of your time and resources so as to influence them towards Christ, if your job is to influence your kids towards Christ, if you're a kid, if your job is to influence your siblings or your parents towards Christ, that can happen. Teenagers, nine-year-olds, that can happen. It does happen. You can influence your parents and friends towards Christ. If that's your job and you reckon for just a second, that's impossible. I need help. Yes, you do. You need power for that. Who has it? God Do you believe that? If you did, you'd pray. And you'd pray, and you'd pray, and you'd pray. He has what you need. Knock, knock, knock. Knock, knock, knock. Knock, knock, knock. Again and again and again. Pour it out. Please. We need to be a people that lives like this. And I'm preaching way over my head here. I need to be a person who, who lives like this. This isn't, this isn't me yet. It's not us yet either. We need to be a people who lives like this, persistently, with one accord, gathered together, praying down the Spirit on us, praying down power to change things. You look out, you look out at the mission assigned to us, look at all the lights in the valley at night, and you think, no way, no way. Unless God pours out his spirit, it has happened. Countries have changed. Whole countries have changed like that when he pours out his spirit. Has he promised to do that for the United States in Salt Lake City? Not exactly. Because other countries have not changed throughout history. Spent a lot of time in the country of Turkey. Turkey, that is the root of the New Testament, the seven churches of Revelation are all in Turkey. Much of the Apostle Paul's work was in Turkey. Turkey was a hotbed of Christianity and isn't anymore. We used to talk about praying for revival in Turkey. And somebody once said, well, actually we should pray for revival because there's no re in it. And then somebody else said, actually there is. It's just several thousand years ago. Why has there been a couple thousand year gap there? Who knows? Sovereignty of God. We don't have any sure, certain promise that he will pour out his spirit here. But we do have a sure, certain promise that he will continue the good work that he's begun in you. We do have his promise that he will gather in his sheep from everywhere. We do have his promise that he will use you as his witness. We do have those kinds of promises. And putting all those things together and knowing the character of God that takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked... I put all those things together and I think, I want to pray. I want to pray. I don't know for certain about that specific, but I know about this. And I want to pray. And I want us to be a people who pray. 
fervently, consistently, in one accord, actively taking up the promises of God and saying, you will do all that you need to do to accomplish your mission. You will do that through me. Please do it through me. Through us, here, now. We will happily submit to you, whichever way you choose, but please do this with us now. If it doesn't rise in you, realize that unbelief is at the root of it. This is the active, faith-filled response of prayer. What's the root of it? The opposite of that is unbelief. Perhaps inadvertent, perhaps deliberate. You take those statements, you will be my witnesses. I will pour out the spirit of power on you. You will make me an issue throughout the world. And as you step away from that, deliberately or inadvertently, unbelief is rising in you. Which calls for repentance. I'm off track, Lord. I just realized I'm off track. I don't really think that's my job. So I'm not really praying. I'm off track. Repent. Turn back to him. Respond in faith-filled action. Actively, in faith, depend on God to do what he has promised to do in fulfilling the Great Commission. Let me pray. God, I confess to you my prayerlessness. And I confess to you that half the time I... Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.